0: In this presentation from Managing Experience 2007, Jesse James Garrett, co-founder of both Adaptive Path and the Information Architecture Institute, examines what is behind the long-term success of truly transformative consumer technology products like TiVo, Flickr, and the iPod on IT Conversations. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to MX San Francisco. We're all very excited by the event and especially by the reception that... um, Uh, that we've gotten for the event. We had the the idea to put something like this together uh, last fall and it was uh, really just, uh, we had a hunch that uh, there was a community out there that uh, perhaps had not yet been able to get together face to face uh, to talk about the challenges that they face in managing experiences. And one of the uh, One of the real kind of gratifying things about this as an opportunity is the opportunity for all of us, not just the presenters up here on the stage, but for all of us to share uh, stories and uh, share the kind of the adventures we've had in trying to manage experiences. The story I want to tell is perhaps an older story than you might be uh, expecting me to tell. It starts back about 120 years ago. In 1886, Scientific American published an article hailing a new photographic apparatus. This camera was going to revolutionize photography. They described it as the most practical of systems for the itinerant photographer. But as as all of the letters that you can see on this diagram suggest, and the article accompanying the diagram describing the use of the product makes clear, there are actually quite a lot of parts to keep track of. 19 different components to the system. Now, this may have been simpler than the cameras that came before it, but there's still this enormous complexity that users of this camera would have to manage. As a result of this complexity, photography was essentially the domain only of trained professionals or talented really enthusiastic hobbyists. This guy had a different idea about it. It's a fellow named George Eastman. And around the time that that article was published in Scientific American, uh, he developed a new technology for, for photography. Film that came on a roll, rather than as a series of plates. And when Eastman decided that he wanted to bring this uh, roll film technology to market, He had the idea that his camera could be something more than the cameras that had gone before it. He encapsulated his idea with this phrase. You press the button, we do the rest. Eastman had had a vision for photography as something that didn't just belong to professionals or to those dedicated hobbyists but as something that could belong to everyone. Photography as a mass consumer activity. And so when he uh, turned his idea into a product, his camera took a very different approach in design. He decided that his camera was so different, it needed a different kind of name. And so he made up a word. He called it the Kodak. And the Kodak camera became, in many ways, the very first consumer technology product. Unlike the 15 to 20 steps that we saw with that earlier camera in Scientific American, the Kodak could be used by anyone with just three simple steps. You press the button, and the Eastman Kodak Company does the rest. The complexity of photography reduced to a simple interaction. And as a result, Kodak became not only one of the most enduring brands Uh, in the history of business, but it also became a watershed in the history of photography. The history of photography now can be divided into two points. Before Kodak, when photography belonged to professionals and dedicated hobbyists, and after Kodak, when it belonged to everyone. Now all of us would love, all of us who do this kind of design work every day would love the opportunity to be part of something like this, to be part of creating a product that transforms an industry. But in order to get there, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. What's the highest compliment someone can pay a product that we create? If we talk to our stakeholders, the people that we interact with on a daily basis as we create products, they might say something like this. Really great products are the ones that make a lot of money or really great products are the ones that are really reliable. But what if we could make products that cause people to say this, I can't live without it. Isn't that really what we're after? So what does it take to make products that people can't live without? This guy seems to know something about it. Here's Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, holding his, uh, the latest sensation to come out of Apple, the iPhone thing's not even going to be out for six months and everybody wants one. So here's what he says about creating great products. He says, when you start looking at a problem and it seems really simple with all these simple solutions, you don't really understand the complexity of the problem. And your solutions are way too oversimplified and they don't work. A lot of companies get into trouble with this when they rely on technology to sell their products when they rely on the existence of the technology to make the product appealing to consumers. Now, early on in the history of any product category, this can work as a strategy. This is WordStar, one of the most popular early word processing programs. Now, to our eyes, it's somewhat unsophisticated, probably pretty hard to use. But for WordStar's audience back in the early 80s, whose alternative was this, WordStar was a godsend. That technology really did make that a compelling product. Back in the 1700s, this guy, Samuel Johnson, described the phenomenon like this. Like a dog's walking on his hind legs, it is not done well, but you are surprised to find it done at all. You can imagine the same kind of reaction to the early VCRs here's a radical new concept. You can record television and then watch it later. But as a product it's pretty unsophisticated. Not much to look at, bulky, noisy, probably not that easy to use. But then something happened. Here's the second part of what Steve Jobs says about creating great products. He says, then you get into the problem and you see it's really complicated. And you come up with all these convoluted solutions. That's sort of the middle, and that's where most people stop. And the solutions tend to work for a while. So now we're moving beyond technology as a differentiator for the product and starting to look at the product in terms of the features that it offers. The trouble with this uh, feature-oriented mindset is that if you take it to its logical conclusion, what you get is something like this. WordStar gave way to Microsoft Word, and Microsoft Word approached the market from a feature perspective. The idea being that the way to to appeal to their audience was to deploy this avalanche of very tiny, narrowly focused features, most of which most people would never ever use. In VCRs, it turned into products like this one. It's not just enough to be able to record and playback television. We need our VCRs to do lots and lots and lots and lots of different things. Despite all of these features, nobody seems to be able to figure out how to set the clock. <laughs> the blinking 12 o'clock has become kind of this iconic example of the product feature that nobody can figure out how to use. So how do we get beyond this feature-oriented mindset? Well, here's what Steve Jobs has to say. He says, The really great person will keep on going and find the key underlying principle of the problem and come up with a beautiful, elegant solution that works. A beautiful, elegant solution that works. Sounds like the kind of thing Steve would say about maybe the iPhone or the iPod or Mac OS X. The interesting thing about this quote is that it wasn't this Steve Jobs who said this. It was this one, back in 1984. It's not a matter of technological progress that we're talking about here. What we're talking about is your mindset, the approach that you bring to product development. Moving beyond relying on technology to deliver value to customers, moving beyond relying on features and delivering value through experience. The TiVo is one of those compelling products that people can't imagine living without. It's transformed the way that people relate to television. Now TiVo could have taken a very different approach with the design of their product. In the same way that George Eastman could have just stuck roll film in the existing box of the previous generation of cameras, TiVo could have basically pulled the tape drive mechanism out of a VCR, replaced it with a hard drive, and said, that's our digital video product. But they did something different. They took a step back and reimagined what the experience of recording and playing back video could be, could be like for people. And as a result, TiVo's mind share now far exceeds their market share and TiVo, as a brand name, is at risk of becoming a genericized trademark in the same way that Kleenex and Xerox faced that kind of challenge in the 20th century. Here's another example. Anybody recognize this device? This is the Diamond Rio PMP300. This was the first widely available digital music player. And when people saw this product, they were really excited. They said, this thing is going to change everything. It's got the right technology, it's got the right features. The record industry was so sure that the Diamond Rio was going to be one of these transformative products that they went to court to ask the federal government to, make, to declare this specific product Illegal. They tried to have it banned. They were so sure it was going to be such a runaway success. But what happened instead? Three years later, this product came along. The iPod did less, it cost more, and it completely took over the market. It's got something of, it's got upwards of 75% market share for digital music players now. So, how did they do it? a big part of the iPod success has to do with the psychology of the way that people interact with technology products. There's a whole lot of scientific evidence now that uh, shows that the cognitive mechanisms that come into play when people engage in an interaction with a technology product are the very same mechanisms that come into play when we interact with each other. In other words we relate to products as if they were people. In the press coverage about the iPod, you see lots of these kinds of anecdotes about the, the affection that people have for these devices. There was one story that, uh, that talked about a 12-year-old girl who the first, the first day that she had her iPod, she kissed it goodnight before she went to bed. You, say, you can say, well, that's really cute, and that's you know, a 12-year-old girl, but... That still doesn't explain stories like the grown-up who, when their iPod broke and it had to be replaced, went out and bought the new one, but then couldn't take it out of its box for two days because it meant they would have to say goodbye to that old friend. We're talking about a hunk of metal and plastic here that someone had this deep emotional attachment to. This is iGuy. This is an iPod case that makes physical this psychological relationship, this attachment that people have uh, to their iPods. Now, in the case of TiVo, they couldn't anthropomorphize their physical product in that same way. So they anthropomorphize the logo instead. Both products recognize that when you're interacting with the product, you're interacting with a person. You ascribe personality traits to it. And the most successful products like this know who they are. They know what personality traits they're trying to convey. They know the identity of the product that they want to communicate through the experience that people have. And there's an integrity to that experience. This is really different from the way that the software industry, for example, thinks about product development. A model that you see uh, commonly used to talk about software development is this one, where every product has at its core a bunch of data. And that data has kind of wrapped around it some logic to manipulate and process that data. And then wrapped around that, we've got this kind of outer shell of the user experience. In fact, shell is a term that programmers use to describe... The interface of an application. The trouble is that this conceptual model doesn't exist in the minds of people who use these products at all. Here's their model, there's the user interface, and then the rest of it is magic. (laughs) They don't know about data, they don't know about logic, they don't care. Because they're not relating to it on that level they're relating to it on the level of the experience. But when we build outward from technology toward experience, we run into trouble. That creates experiences that have uh, friction and inconsistencies, that don't have that integrity of personality that we're looking for. This is starting to change. More and more in the, in the world of software, people are starting with the experience and working backward, making choices about features, making choices about technology that support and reinforce that integrity of experience that they want to deliver. Tim O'Reilly is the uh, head of O'Reilly Media and probably one of the best-known trend watchers in the technology industry. When he first recognized this, he described it as designing from the outside in. For those of us who do this kind of work, we call it experience strategy. Experience strategy is an approach that provides product designers, product developers, with a clearly articulated touchstone for all of the decisions that that they make throughout the design and development process to help them make choices about the technology, about the features that they, they put into the product, to reinforce that sense of identity, that sense of personality that the product will have. George Eastman understood this. You press the button, we do the rest is this concise description of the experience that he intended his product to deliver to people. In the process of creating that product, this essentially gave him a star to sail his ship by. Something to guide all of the choices that he made in the design of the product. A clear objective to design toward. Here's a more recent example of this in action. This is Google Calendar. Now there are a lot of applications out there on the web these days that will help you manage your calendar. When Google set out to build their own calendar product, they started with this. This is a slide from a presentation given not too long ago by the product manager for Google Calendar, articulating The experience that they wanted the product to deliver, fast, visually appealing, joyous to use, drop-dead simple, easy to share, describing the vision for the product not in terms of business goals, not in terms of a set of features, but in terms of the experience that they wanted to deliver. This, again, was a guidepost for them throughout the design and development process. And for Google Calendar, that has really paid off. This is traffic data for Google Calendar and its two main competitors, Yahoo and Microsoft. And you can see, in the nine months that that Google Calendar's been out, it's gone from zero, up and up and up and up, and Yahoo and Microsoft trending ever lower, until finally, nine months later, Google has actually overtaken the number two player. Now, when we talk about the, the identity of a product, some people might think that you're talking about the brand. But we're really talking about something different. Because brand identity is the whole practice of, of branding is predicated on this idea of the message that you want to send to the consumer and the ideas that you want to impose on them. But an approach driven by experience strategy is exactly the opposite of that. It's about working from the consumer back to the organization and incorporating what we know about them and what we know about the experience we want to deliver into our processes, into our approach. This is an example of this kind of thing in action in some of our recent work. We did a a project for a big financial services firm. They asked us to redesign the website that their customers use to uh, manage their accounts and buy and sell stocks and mutual funds and things like that. So we went out into the field and we visited people in their homes and we studied how they manage their financial lives. And they showed us all of the different tools that they use. They showed us their account statements and their Filing cabinets and their spreadsheets, and all of this stuff that they use. Out of this, uh, out of this process of looking at all the stu- all of the tools that they use and how those tools fit together. Out of this, we developed a set of strategic design requirements, qualities that the system would have to have in order to fit into the bigger picture of financial management for uh, for individuals. With this handful of strategic requirements we could then take a closer look at the business goals of the organization, compare those with the strategic requirements for the experience that we wanted to, to deliver, supportive, assistive, helpful, clear. Turn those into opportunities that when aligned with the business goals produced a set of experience strategies. This, again, is that star, that guidepost, that touchstone for us. So when we got into the design process, we could make all of those little choices according to how they aligned with that set of experience strategies that we had developed. I think one of the most powerful things about this is that the experience strategies actually will outlive the specific design work that we've done because they're about behavior and they're about the personality of the product. They can endure and the next iteration of this design will still incorporate those experience strategies as a guidepost. But one thing that we found here puts that success at risk because one of the most important things that we found in our research was that the website didn't stand alone. It couldn't stand alone. It was only a part of the total experience that the company was delivering to its customers. We could make that website really effective, but that wasn't really solving the problem. In order to solve the entire problem, we had to leverage the entire system all of the channels through which the organization delivers experience to its customers. Even the Kodak had this approach in mind because although the interaction here was simple, George Eastman didn't actually simplify photography itself. There's still an enormous amount of technological complexity to the process of creating photographs. What he did was he focused his product on a narrow, simple interaction, and then the complexity all happened behind the scenes at Eastman's factory. You would be able to, uh, to send the camera off to the factory, have them produce the photographs for you, reload the camera with film, and then ship it all back to you. Which brings us back to the iPod. If you look at the iPod... It doesn't really do very much. And if we think of the iPod as a standalone product, it doesn't seem like it does enough to be successful in the marketplace. The fact is that the iPod isn't a standalone product, it has its companion, the iTunes desktop software. So there is a lot of complexity in managing digital media that isn't handled by the iPod as a product at all that complexity has been offloaded to the PC, where it can be handled more effectively. And then Apple extended that even further with the iTunes Music Store. And now, with this system, they've provided the total experience, end-to-end, for any consumer of digital media. With the iPod product to play the media, the iTunes software to manage it, and the Music Store service to acquire it, We have a single experience that's brought about by the integration of these elements into a complete system. Now photography has changed quite a bit since George Eastman's day, but it's no less complex. You've got the cameras. You've got software to manage the photos. You've got the other cameras. You've got the desire to get prints. You've got the desire to put photos on the web. It's an enormous challenge, the complexity of the system. And it's made more more difficult by the fact that no one controls it end-to-end the way that Apple does with the iPod. But still, by taking a systems view of the experience that you're delivering, you can find a place for yourself in the market the way that Flickr has. Flickr, you will not be surprised to learn, is also driven by an explicit experience strategy and they put theirs right out there on the web. This is what they say about their product. We want to help people make their photos available to the people who matter to them. To do this we want to get photos into and out of the system in as many ways as we can. Flickr is the WD-40 that makes it easy to get photos from one person to another in whatever way they want. We want to enable new ways of organizing photos. Part of the solution is to make the process of organizing photos collaborative. Now this isn't a mission statement, right? They're not trying to deliver world-class photo management. It's not a laundry list of features. It's something else. It's a description of the experience that they want to deliver that can guide all of the choices that they make about the design of the site. And as a result, it brings order to that chaos of digital photography, allowing Flickr to integrate with your computer, with your camera phone, to get photos into the system, publish photos out to the web or manage them there, get prints from third-party vendors, or integrate with the other applications that Yahoo has to offer, like Upcoming and Delicious. Flickr has through its experience strategy, established itself as the hub of that system, even though they don't control all the pieces. And this fundamentally is the challenge that our client faces now in trying to integrate all of these experience channels into a single unified experience strategy. To learn from the lessons of Flickr, and Kodak, and Google, and Apple, to deliver a product that knows who it is, deliver on that strategy because the experience is the product that we deliver, and the only part that our audience really cares about. Thanks very much for your attention. You've been listening to a presentation delivered at Adaptive Paths User Experience Week. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Paul Fijiani. Our website editor was Kat McConnell. The series producer is Sean Osteen. This is Phil Wendley, and I look forward to bringing you more exciting presentations from Adaptive Paths User Experience Week, here on IT Conversations.